Hello, this is the Hospice Podcast, and so this is St John's Hospice in Lancashire. I'm Sophie, and thank you for joining us. So last time we were here, we were joined by Dr Phil Swarbrick to talk through advanced care planning. There was a lot to talk about because it's a huge subject. So we're back today to continue this. Phil is a senior specialty doctor here at St John's Hospice. Phil, welcome back. Hello, it's lovely to be back, thank you. That's great, thanks for coming to us again. Now, when we left the conversation last time, we were talking about how advanced care planning means. It means that you've sorted a lot of things out, and I think you said, you know, for a lot of people, you've sorted things out, it means you can start to concentrate on, on having fun. But we realised that there was a lot we still needed to talk about. You know, you talked about the lasting power of attorney, or LPA for short, for health and wealth refusing certain types of treatment and he was saying about do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation was quite controversial and and when I hear things like LPA and attorney I think oh paperwork um you know I'm just one of those people that's not really great with paperwork is, is it as hard as I think it is or am I making it out to be worse than it is um well I don't think it has to be hard um, I don't think it has to be any more complicated than you can deal with yourself. Some people want complication, they like to have detail. Um, but there are only one or two things that you perhaps really will need to have at some point. And one of those is the DNA CPR form. Um, all, all the other parts of advanced care planning, last time we talked about preferred wishes, preferred priorities of care, yeah. that's entirely up to you whether you write anything down or even talk about it. As we said, it's always entirely voluntary. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's very, um, it's, it, it's very informal. Okay. And you can just do with it what you wish. But these other pieces of documentation, which they can be, they have to be written down, they have to be formal. Um, and of course, they, they can look a bit complex, but you have got doctors and nurses around you usually. If you've got a chronic illness, you will have doctors and nurses around you who will understand them very well. So in terms of these remaining pieces, which are obviously important, do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It's controversial, isn't it? It's been in the media. Yeah, Why? It, it's always in the media. Um, I think because... Uh, when you read about it in the paper, and, and it's not a medical journal, it's not a medical site, um, people interpret it and, and sometimes get that slightly confused. Okay. So, for instance, the biggest myth that I often hear from patients is, I don't want to sign that piece of paper. Um, and there isn't a place for a patient to sign on it. It's a medical intervention and your medical team sign it. So this immediately uh, makes people feel that they're being controlled in some way, that okay. this is something being done to them. And I think over the recent years, over the last couple of decades, doctors and judges and people who have looked at cases that have gone wrong have been very careful to want to give the power back to the patient as much as possible. Yes. So what we now know is that it is illegal to simply put a do not resuscitate order in place by a doctor and then not talk about it. Ideally to talk about it with the patient, but right. if they're not able to talk about it because they may be delirious or unconscious, then the, the legal rule is that the doctors then must talk about it with the family. That is now a law. 
we're, we're, we're trying to include people and their families. So it's not something that's being done or being taken away. It's something that is a discussion and everybody comes to an agreement about it. So for, for, for the non-clinical people like me and, and, and some of our listeners as well, what is cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Okay, so that's always a very good place to start. Okay, good. Because in the past, it used to be called DNAR, do not resuscitate. And I think that that got um, conflated with the idea that you might not give somebody medication. You might not give them food and fluid. You, ah. you might not help them to get better. And um, there was a time when people were felt, well, if they're palliative and they're not curable, we don't have to give them anything or do anything. And palliative care has fought for decades to make sure that doesn't happen. I that, can that see the passion and hear it in your oh, voice about this. Yes, and absolutely. Because nobody is abandoned. Nobody stops having treatment unless it's a very good reason. So there are some treatments that I wouldn't offer to you. Um, I wouldn't offer you chemotherapy if you didn't have the right cancer. I wouldn't offer you a certain antibiotic if you didn't have a certain infection. And I wouldn't offer you cardiopulmonary resuscitation if I thought that that wouldn't do you any good at all. Okay. So it's a medical decision and intervention, but it needs to be discussed. CPR, bouncing up and down on the chest and the heart through the rib cage, is traumatic, it's forceful. To be, done, to be done properly with any chance of restarting a heart that's stopped, uh, you, you have to move the chest a lot. You usually crack ribs. Oh, it wow. usually produces bruising and pain, um, and it has consequences. You, you can't get over a procedure like that in a few minutes. You have to have care after that, and you'll be in a lot of pain and have painkillers. And if it's successful, that's marvellous. But CPR was actually invented... Um, I think in the 50s, right, um, and it was invented to give by people whose hearts had stopped, um, and that was the only thing that was wrong with them. They were okay. otherwise fairly pretty fit, healthy people who needed an hour of time before they could be got into a hospital with all of the interventions needed mm -hmm. to get a heart going again. So CPR buys that time. It sends oxygen around the body keeps the heart pumping, keeps the brain supplied with blood and buys you some time until people can save you. Now, if your heart is in such a state that that's not possible and if your body is in such a state that recovery is not possible, then we would be doing a very traumatic event for you, which would be what we would call in medical terms futile. And by that we mean that we're gonna do more harm than good. Not that it's a waste of time, it, it would be a waste of time. We don't mean that. The word futile in medicine means no good can come of this. Right. Okay. So this is this makes sense now because this is different, isn't it, than somebody who, dare I say it, is palliative care that we might have here at St John's or, or around the community versus somebody who's out there shopping, been on a bike ride and whatever. These are completely different scenarios, aren't they? Yes in terms of where it's going to do more harm than good. Exactly. And this is a media thing, isn't it, where we see on the television, don't we, you know, the chest pumps, the drama, everything that comes with it. Yeah, and it always, it's always much more successful on television, of course. That's why course. they're showing you that piece <laughs> of drama. 
and, and, and it can be very successful. And that's why we want everybody out there to learn how to do it and to use a defibrillator. Yeah. And on someone who simply has a heart attack in the street, um, that's what will save them. Brilliant. But if you are a patient who has chronic illness, often with metastatic, that's cancer that's widespread through your body, or if you have a chronic condition which is affecting your nerves, your lungs, your heart, and your body organs are not in good condition, the chances of bringing you back with CPR and giving you a good life at any, any time in front of you is, is much more negligible. It's, it's, it's vanishingly small. Okay. And, and when, once you get over the age of about 85, the statistics show that it's a very tiny percentage of people who come through that, mm. not because of their age, but because by the time you get there, you, your kidneys, your liver, your heart and lungs, they just don't work as well. And so you're much less likely to do well from this procedure. But it is always a discussion. And it's a choice, isn't it? Well, there's, there's an element of choice. choice. It's, it's not a choice when it's clear to the medical team that you won't benefit. Right. When the burden of doing it will actually just be an awful traumatic occasion with nothing to come out of it. Then a doctor will say to you, we really don't want to do that. It's not in our um, authority to do that to you because as a medic, we just feel that that would not work. So that isn't really a choice for the patient, but they should still have that discussion, should still listen to the reasons why, and hopefully involve family so the family understand why that shouldn't happen. Um, and then you've got people who are relatively fit, but who just never want the procedure. That's why I was thinking it was a choice. So there is an element of choice. So if you said, if I said to you, I'm reasonably fit, there's nothing wrong with me, but I never want someone jumping up and down on my chest and come back to that. I don't want that, ever want that. Um, that's fine. That's your choice. You can choose not to have that. Even if that's against medical advice, oh, I think we could help you. Mm -hmm. No, I don't want it. You can refuse treatment. You can't ask for treatment that doctors feel wouldn't be helpful. Ah. And then you've got everybody in the middle um, who might be 50-50. So doctors feel, okay, this person isn't really that well, but maybe there's a chance that resuscitation will help them. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation will help them. Um, and there's a chance that that will work. And that, that's, that is a discussion where choice is involved. So the patient may say, well, I think I'd like you to do everything you possibly can. Yeah. And so we say, okay, we, that's what we will do. We won't write the form. We'll, we'll intervene mm -hmm. if we think. Or the patient may say, no, I've, you know, I'm not so good, really. I'm, I'm getting to the end of my life. I really don't want someone doing that. And then we would write the form for you. So what role, I don't know if you can answer this question, what role does the family play? So I'm thinking of a scenario where I may have made the decision where I'm saying, actually, if, if it comes to that, I don't want it. But obviously, a lot of people have family members saying, just as you've just said, do everything, try everything. That, that's like a third element, really, isn't it? So in, in that instance... How yeah. So we always, always want to hear what families say. And that's why it's so important when a patient makes a decision about anything, including DNA CPR, that they do tell their nearest and dearest. It's not a shock and a surprise when a first responder turns up and says, this isn't the right thing to do. Or an ambulance man said, we shouldn't be doing this. 
then nobody is surprised. You know, it's not a horrible event for them. Um, A family cannot override what a patient has put in stone. Right. So uh, as a family, I don't know whether we mentioned this last time, but uh, your family members can't speak on your behalf, even if you are incapacitated, if you're unconscious, can't talk to the doctors. They can't actually make a decision for your behalf unless they have LPA, which we can come on to in a minute. Good, good. However, any medical professional, which includes all nurses and paramedics who might arrive at the scene, should listen to what you say, but they make their own medical judgment because after all, they don't know who the relatives are, what relationship you have with that patient. You don't know whether they are arguing for some other reason one way or another. You have no... You have no evidence unless you have pieces of paper which tell you that, or people have made it clear verbally to a whole team that they do or don't want something. So that the the people arriving on the scene would need to make a decision based yeah. on what available um, information they have. So take us back to the LPA because yeah. you mentioned this at the end of the last podcast, and it's something that actually is coming to conversation. A couple of conversations I've had this week. There's two, isn't there? There's two types yes. of LPA, lasting yes. power of attorney. That's right. T- t- yes. Tell us more about this, Phil. Okay, so the, the term lasting power of attorney, which is a very English-Welsh thing, so the, the legalities are slightly different in Northern Ireland and Scotland because they have a slightly different legal system. So they're called slightly different things and they work in a slightly different way, but the principles are the same. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful if you're in Scotland yes. or or Northern Ireland, that it is slightly different, and they're called slightly different things. Um, but the lasting power of attorney, were, that phrase was coined during the time when the Mental Capacity Act was created in 2005, which we mentioned last time. Yeah. And what used to be in place before that was the enduring power of attorney, uh, which many of us have. Uh, I've got one with my husband, which says, uh, if something happens to me, you can access all my money and pay the bills. Or whatever you want to do. I'm, li- I'm, like, I'm liking the way you said and pay the bills. You've not just said access the money. This is good. So the enduring power of attorney still persists. If you've still got one, it still works in that way. But the new Mental Capacity Act said you can have two types of attorney, and so we'll call them lasting powers of attorney. And one is for money and and wealth and estate, just as the old enduring one was. And the other one is for health and welfare. So now you can, in since 2005, you are able to nominate other people to speak on your behalf as if they were you. Right. So when a doctor, if a doctor came to the house and the patient said, I want this, and, the, and they, or they had, say, let's say that they were incapacitated and couldn't say, and the family there saying, we want you to do this, doctor, the doctor would have to make up their own decision, what's the right thing to do here, based on all the evidence he can gather. But if one of those relatives produces an LPA document and says, here we've got legal rights to speak on behalf of the patient, and I'm this person named and I'm I'm that person, and uh, it says that I can make decisions based on this, the doctor has to listen to the relative as if they are the patient. Right. So this is, I'm guessing, something you absolutely have to be on the ball with once you've lost capacity... You can't, you, can't do any advanced, you can't do any advanced care planning if you have no capacity. Yeah. Because it's about setting in motion the things ahead of you. So you, 
for instance, when patients enter nursing homes, this is often a time when people think, should we try to get some wishes from that patient, some advanced care yeah. planning? Because we know that many people who enter nursing homes, for the very reason they've gone in there, they have a shorter lifespan, they're not as well people. So things can happen to them. And um, so what we want is to hear what the person wants. And if what the person wants is, I want my son and daughter to speak for me on my behalf and be lasting powers of attorney for me, and that would include my health and well-being yeah. as well as my money, then that's what we should help people with. We should help uh, to point them towards a place where they can go to create this to happen. So is it possible, and, and again, apologies if this, this is not one for you, is it possible to have one person as your LPA for health and wealth, sorry, for, for wealth and finance, and another person to be your LPA for health and well-being. Yes, and, and it's even okay. more detailed than that because each um, uh, document can name one or more people. You can have um, as many people as you like, actually. I, I don't think there's a limit. But obviously, if you name a lot of people, <laughs> you're going to end up with a lot of family discussion. And that you might Perhaps make some decisions harder. <laughs> um, but you can name several people to be each attorney. They could be the same. They could be different. And you can also nominate them to act jointly or severally. So this is a very legal term. And jointly means that they have to sit together and make a decision all together or they can make a decision on their own as a single per, single voice. And what's more, the patients, if they wish to get really complicated, they can say, if it's a question about where I live for the rest of my care, yeah. I, could, I nominate those two people to make a joint decision on that. But if it's a question of whether I get some medical treatment for, say, I need an operation, I'm just naming this one person just uh, on their own to make that decision. You know, okay. you can be as detailed as you wish because you might have expertise in your family yes, that you feel is better suited to one decision or another. And surely this is a document. Surely this is paperwork. This is a lot of paperwork. Okay. You can do it all online or you can apply online and just get them delivered to you and go through it on paper and then send it back. And, and it is a bit complex. I've done it myself. Um, for other people yeah. um, and you have to work your way through it and it's often easier if you've done it before and if you've got members of your family who are good at paperwork get them to do it with you yeah. because it all needs to be witnessed as well so you, you need people who are not named in the document to act just as witnesses that it has been done properly and signed a bit like doing a will so a bit like doing a will at the end of the last one, you mentioned about the, the website Compassion in Dying, mm. and there's a lot of information on there. So is this something that you could literally download and sit there with someone and have the conversation with? Absolutely, yeah. You do then have to pay some money to get it registered. And if you haven't filled it in a bit, uh, something's missing, you have to redo it. You have to pay 50% of that again. So I think the, the going cost, when I last looked at it not that long ago, was £82 yes, for yes. Each, each attorney document. And if you had made a mistake and had to redo it, it was another 41 So it is worth really trying to get it right the it's first time. It's about doing your homework properly then, this, isn't it? You don't have to make it very complicated. You just make, need to make sure that you've ticked the boxes that are yeah. right for you and said what's right for you. So I've made out a scenario that could be very complex, but it doesn't have to be quite like that. You could simply say, 
if I'm incapacitated, this is the person that I want to speak to for me and about these sorts of decisions. And then everybody signs the right boxes and leaves it at that. So listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, it's paperwork. It's not impossible. It doesn't need to be complicated. I can see that this would also help the family because again, we're back to where we were last time, is talking about it. It's the discussion, isn't it? It's not getting to the situation of, I think she'd want that. No, I think she'd want something completely different because the conversation's been had. I think that's absolutely the best thing about it, really. Um, all of these elements of advanced care planning are about everybody knowing about what might happen before the event, preventing crises, preventing yeah. upset, everybody being in the same room at the same time, knocking down those barriers. You know, I know it's tough and I know we talk about hard things, but actually once it's out in the open and everyone's heard it, how much easier is it? And then you can file it away, you've got the boxes ticked, you can forget about it a bit. Now you say file it away and I'm, I always feel this is, this is a, the will moment, isn't it? Where people have made a will, but where has he or she put the will? Mm -hmm. And from, you know, is it in someone's underwear drawer? Is it behind the microwave? Is it on the back of the, the kitchen door? A again, I'm guessing you need to tell people where this document is, don't you? I'm stating yes. the obvious, but... Yes, um, and of course it's going to be different for everybody, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it is a good idea if your nearest nearest to know where all your important documents are. Absolutely. Um, if you just have a filing cabinet or a box that you keep all those in. I know people, sometimes at the end of life, people get medications in boxes and the nurses bring a box in and stick it in the corner and then they have the, the patients have conversations about these plans and they, they stick the documents in the folder in the same box so this is my little end of life care little little area in my house they could do that um, okay. in the past we used to have something called the message in a bottle um, and uh, I think that's a song <laughs> yes it is I think that's where it came from the, and the idea was that people would have a little tube in the fridge and you would have a message in there saying where things were uh, and people used to, but, but everyone's taken off on a different tangent. So I'm not sure that everybody knows where anybody's would be. Yes. So it, what we do is we, if people do want some of these documents, and we haven't mentioned all of them yet, but supposing they have got a DNA CPR signed by their GP, we can put it into quite a bright yellow folder. We call them the gold folders. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they have little notes in them. Uh, and they have little explanations and uh, booklets that to help people make decisions and all of it can just go in a simple little plastic folder and it's fairly bright and fairly obvious so it's easy to find well you know um i do know people who stick them in the back of the wardrobe and right. of course they can't be found but yes, <laughs> if, the idea would be that if if something happened to you it's a bit like the medical alert around your neck yeah so a lot of people say, well, I don't need it today. Nothing's going to happen today. Yes, <laughs> Leave it on the mantelpiece. And yeah. then they fall and they can't reach it. Yeah. So something happens to you. You want someone to be able to know where that is. So it's, it's be it'd be nice if people would, you know, make it obvious yeah. or tell somebody very close to them where to go find it. Uh, so if you have a heart attack or something happens to you and medics are on the door, have you got any advanced care planning in the house? And the neighbour says, yes, she always keeps it there on the mantelpiece. Yeah. <laughs> or on, on the other one, I seem to remember from some time ago, there was, 
a suggestion that everyone would have this file on, on the back of the front door. Yes. So that yes. when you were leaving the house, the, 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 the documentation yeah. was always there. I'm conscious, just to go back a few minutes, you you, you said, so this, this, is, this isn't the only statement, this isn't the only piece of paper. Something that you said, and I'm thinking, uh -huh. there's something else we need to talk about here. Well, so we've, we've mentioned the DNA CPR. That's yeah. it. That's... That's different colours. Ours is red at the moment, but it's going purple or lilac. And actually, because people don't have good photocopiers, it's all white. So <laughs> all these pieces of paper end up looking white eventually. Um, so we've got the DNA CPR and we might have the paperwork that gets sent back for the LPA. Now, the LPA, you could have a note about it, but it's actually online. You would it's with the court of protection so that if you have the right numbers and the password and, 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 the, and the, the date of it and everything, someone can go and check that for you. Uh, but it's useful to have a, a, a hard memo so that people hard can to know copy. where to go yeah. for that. Um, the other pieces of paper that you might want to do um, is an advanced decision to refuse treatment. That's the other major one. You might have your preferred priorities of care documents in there. You might want to write some letters, stick them all in there. You know, anyway, we talked about that last time. Yeah. So you can stick it all into this single folder. The other main one is the advanced decision to refuse treatment. So is this a bit like the advanced decision to say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want? So your preferred priorities of care sort of said what you do want. Okay. By choice, if you had full choice, which of course we all know that you can't always have full choice, but you can put down there anything that you think you would quite like to have. Yeah. Now you can say on that what you don't really want, but there may be some things that you really, really don't want to happen. Um, so you might decide that if your condition got worse, if you've done this a lot of times before, you've been in and out of the hospital numerous times, you come to the decision, you don't want to go back into hospital because what happens is they give you some oxygen, which you've got at home anyway. They give you some steroid, which you've got at home anyway. They give you some antibiotics and after two or three days of noise and lights and upset, they send you home again. Right. And you know that that's always the case. So actually, it's time to stop doing that. We need to stop going into hospital. We need to help people at home have access to resources to help you. Okay. So you might say, under no circumstances do I want to go back into hospital if it's just an exacerbation of my chest problem. Yeah. But it has to be specific. Because if you say, I don't want to go back into hospital for any reason, and you break your arm and you need a plaster, everyone's conflicted because now they've got a piece of paper that says, says don't no. send me in. <laughs> yeah. So... The ADRT, Advanced Decision to Refuse Treatment, it gives you, when you open our piece of paper that we've got, it gives you specific language to use and it says you've got to be very specific about the circumstance. And you have to say, if it's a treatment that might save your life, you have to say, even if this would save my life, I don't want this, that and the other. So it has to be really specific because the people coming in to look after you, yeah will have to interpret that in whatever way they can for the best for you. And if you really don't want something, they want to know what it is you don't want. So is this another one for the gold or yellow folder, or mm. is this something that's online, lodged with your GP? How, how does this This will be work? a piece of paper because you need to fill it in in your own words and get right. it signed and witnessed again because it is a, this is a legal document again, like the LPA. Okay. 
um, and, it's a, and it's a good idea to share it with people. As we've said, everything is well shared. Um, and especially your medical teams, your district nurse team, or if you're having them, or your specialist respiratory team, if they're coming in, or your mental yeah. health care team. If you don't want a certain thing, show them a piece of paper, maybe ask for advice exactly how to word it, get it signed, and then that is your edict for your future. You have said, do not do that to me. Phil, who signs it? When you say get it signed, who well, signs Well, you, you it? sign it yourself, yeah. and then someone else signs it to say that they're seeing you sign it. Okay. They know it's you, and they know it's your wishes, and they're also saying that you've not been coerced into saying this. So is that person a health professional, or is Doesn't it have their, to be. Their, their, their partner, their could be friend? Anybody. Okay. Could be any, just like the LPA, the signing can be anybody. It's just a witness, really. The signing is a witness. So it's a witness of your signature, it's a witness of the fact that this person has made this decision, Yeah, been discussed. Yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to top these up in terms of the numbers of, the numbers of statements, number, not the number of pieces of paper, because that takes it back to, to paperwork, but I think really the biggies are, there's the advanced care plan, which doesn't necessarily have to be the piece of paper. It's the discussion about preferences, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Your preferred priorities. Yes. Care. Yes, that's that one. Preferred priorities. You don't have to have a piece of paper. No, it's it's about again. It's, it's about the conversation, isn't it? It doesn't need to be a plan. You, yeah. you know, on 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 paper. Yeah. The LPA. It takes time to get the LPA. It can take weeks. And during the pandemic, it was taking even more weeks, 10, 12 weeks. Some, sadly, some people with cancer won't even have that amount of time. Um, and, um, or even with COVID, you know, there yeah. isn't time to put these things. But it's not always necessary because a good team of doctors and nurses will get patients to talk to their families, yeah. to, to talk to them as well, hear what they want, the basics are in place, it's only for certain people who feel they really want an LPA. And again, it's 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 good to, to know this because I think there's what you've been able to do today, certainly for me and, and I'm sure for our listeners, is basically bust a lot of myths. Because the way I understand it, this was all everything was to do with paperwork, everything was to do with documentation. And what you're saying is a lot of this is about conversations. It's about letting people know your preferences. Yes, there are certain things which, which have to be written down. It's about keeping everything in one place, isn't it? So that it can be found by the, the people, you know, that, that you care for. And that the people who need to see it yeah. can see it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, again, you, you make me think about with certain types of illnesses, people want to get themselves... That, that, everything in order, don't they? Because they think, as you said, with something like motor neurone disease, right, there could be a time when this is going to happen to me. So I basically want, want, want to get it arranged now. Yes, I mean, all of this is planning. Yeah. You know, it, it is what it says on the tin, as they say. Yeah. It is planning. And mm. um, some people don't want to plan and some people can't face it. And that's sure. okay. That's okay. Nobody has to do any of this. Think of it as a set of resources that you can take up and use as you wish. The and if you wish. As you wish. Yeah. The only thing that people will push you for 
or will push to discuss with you will be the DNA CPR. Because if you are, particularly if you're in a hospital or a hospice or another place of care, like a care home, they need to know what they need to do if something happens to you suddenly. You need to know, am I calling the ambulance? Am I trying to do CPR? Or is that not appropriate? Or is it not what the patient wants? And so that piece of paper is there as guidance, it's not a legal document, it's guidance for those who come and say, is it likely that this is going to be useful or not? Is it the right thing to do for this person or not? So that piece of paper we try to get in, in place, on a patient's folder, in a patient's house, if if they will agree to that, Mm -hmm. because it's very helpful to know what's best to be done. And and again, it's about empowerment, isn't it? In my mind, it's about empowerment in terms of saying to, you know, if it was me, the fact that I could think this through, the fact that I could talk it through, the fact that I could express my wishes, again, back to where we were before, it's making it easier for the family because then no one stood there going, well, actually, I don't know if he or she wanted this or the other. So... Yes, I think um, we mentioned that before, that actually families can feel so relieved when this has been done because they'll say things like, oh, at least it's not me making all the decisions as usual. Uh, It's not fallen to me and I wouldn't have known what to do. And I wouldn't have known that my mum wanted that if I hadn't spoken to her about that. I was quite surprised at what her feelings were about this matter. And I've learned so much more about her. And we've been talking about all sorts of other things as well yeah. now. And it's really opened us up to have lots of different conversations. And the very difficult relative from down south has, <laughs> has, has also come and been involved in it and now understands what we're talking about. And we've yeah. got new relations, new relationships with those people. And, it, you know, when you start talking about deep, meaningful matters in life, of course, you, you just get to know people better. So it can be, when you describe it like that, it could be actually quite a bonding experience where you find out these things about each other that actually you didn't know before. Yes. And uh, the most important thing is that it's not a decision that has to be made in the moment of absolute panic and terror when something's going wrong. Yeah. Because we often make the wrong decisions then, don't we? I know I certainly do. (laughs) Phil, is there anything else you think we should know? I mean, about this subject in particular in terms of our advanced care planning, anything else that you're thinking, I just need to say this too. Only that wherever you are in the country, um, there might be slightly different ways of, the pieces of paper might look slightly different. Yes. Um, sometimes doctors will offer you an emergency healthcare plan, which is something a bit different. It's a little bit outside what we've been talking about, but it's about helping people to stay at home. So okay. if you, when I mentioned that lady with the, who might have a very bad chest who didn't want to go into hospital yeah. anymore, we can write an emergency healthcare plan which says this is the main problem that this lady has. When this happens, please keep her at home, try and get the oxygen turned up a bit, give some steroids, uh, give start the antibiotics that the doctor's left in case of this emergency. Yeah. Hold hand, maybe give a tiny dose of Oromorph if you've got it in, maybe give a tiny dose of tranquilizer like a lorazepam tablet. We can list a whole load of things. Sometimes people say, the only thing that calms me down is when someone turns the radio on and sings a song to me or yeah, puts, yeah. Gets, finds my cat and puts my cat on my lap yeah. and strokes it with me. Everybody has things that help calm them down. 
And sometimes it's just a case of finding out what those are and helping. Yeah. Ambulance men are fantastic these days. I know they're struggling at the moment, but they have a job of deciding whether someone goes in or not, whether to resuscitate or not. Let's make their job easier. And if they can sit there for 10 minutes with someone and not take them in, but do all these lovely things with them and maybe get a nurse who, who's, who's free at some point to come over and, and carry on, mm. that person stays out of hospital that is such such a much better outcome than spending days yeah. in, a, in an infective area with a lot of lights and noise that's yes. really not, not pleasant. No, absolutely, because, um, <laughs> you know, we all prefer to be at home, don't we? And being in hospital isn't always the best place. You know, home is where we love. Home is, is where most of us tend to, to feel comfortable. It's where, it's where we recover well. And we know from our work in the hospice, don't we, a lot of people choose to die at home. Yeah. You know, they choose to recover at home, they choose to die at home. People want to be at home. And it, it is difficult, isn't it? Because you say, and I've forgotten about that, some people may not want to go into hospital because it's an unfamiliar environment. You're right, there's different noises, different lights. It can be very confusing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want those events to happen if, if at all possible. So advanced care planning so. and all of these, these things are aiming just to make it as easy as possible to help that patient recover, really, in the best possible way, um, in, in a way that is not burdensome, is not painful, is not inappropriate, won't do anything worse to them. That's what it's all about. But that person is at the centre of that conversation. You don't always have full choice. You can't demand something which would be not appropriate. You said at the beginning you can't demand. You can't demand you can things. refuse, but you can't demand treatment. That's right. Yes. So, but but we need to put everybody at the centre of that conversation. Yeah. And it's it's an ex, this is an extension of that preferred priorities of care, where you are simply saying this is what I would prefer to happen to me. These are the things I prefer not to happen. I don't. I know I, it won't always go like that. Yeah. <laughs> Just like a birth plan won't always go. Absolutely in, not. In the way that we <laughs> expect it to, um, and uh, we're doing our best to 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 do that and work as a team. So it, it's an individual process. We we absolutely must not simply go to someone and say we're going to put this in place now because yeah. this is what we think of you. It needs to be individualised. It needs to be discussed with everybody possible. And I know that takes time. And I know that's hard work. And when we were in the pandemic, there was a lot of you know, difficulty in time. We didn't have the time and we didn't have the resources and we couldn't get the same contact with people. Sure. But it's still wrong and unethical to say to somebody, uh, we shouldn't be resuscitating you now because other, these other things are happening in the world. Um, and we, 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 we put the patient the at the centre of it. Word, sorry. The futile, we need to know what's appropriate for you as an individual. And yeah. you may be a very healthy uh, patient in a residential home. We've really very little wrong with them. And you opt to have CPR and that's right for you. But it, it's all about the patient at yeah. the centre of it. So we're back to the individualised care, isn't it, in terms of what is right for one person is not necessarily right Absolutely. for another person. Absolutely. And they need to be involved in that decision making. Phil, you're an absolute star. Thank you for coming back. Apart from the fact that I feel there's going to be a bit of a rush on of people looking for yellow and gold folders. Um, we have lots. We try, we have to, lots, do we we? try to send them out. <laughs> Great stuff. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You'll be back soon again, I hope. Oh, thank you very much. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening. 
If you feel this has been helpful to you and will be useful for someone else, please do share it. We'll be with you again soon, talking through a different palliative care subject. To make sure you don't miss the next one, simply choose the subscribe option. Thank you for listening today.